Hello and welcome to the Movie Mouth Film and TV Podcast. This is your co-host Miles and on this week's show we will have an exclusive interview with legendary Emmy-nominated Hollywood costume designer Linda M. Bass, whose famous wardrobe creations can be seen in the likes of Field of Dreams, Crash, TV's Weeds and Young Sheldon. We also have two reviews for new TV releases with Brave New World and Netflix's new fantasy series Cursed, and this week's Video Store Corner, where we will rewatch a classic comedy featuring the hilarious Steve Martin and Rick Moranis. We talked last week about how many podcasts fail by their seventh episode, and when pondering whether to continue to this, our eighth show, I took a long stay in Sicily danced with my daughter and revisited my roots. But the podcast will always catch up with you. And instead of living the rest of my life looking over my shoulder, just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. My co-host as ever has the confidence of Michael, the physical intimidation of Sonny, and the hairline of Fredo. And the only way I could get him back onto the podcast this week was my father had to make him an offer he couldn't refuse. Luca Brasi held a gun to his head, and my father assured him that his brains or his signature would be on the contract. It's the podfather himself, Philip Corleone. Hello. Do you sleep How are you? With the fishes? Are you sleeping with the fishes, Philip? Uh, I hope not. <laughs> not. Not today. Not yet. No, no horses' heads in your bed? Uh, no, not not. I haven't checked uh, this evening, but not so far. I don't think. I probably would have heard about that. Already. Well, fingers crossed for you. I have my fingers crossed for you. I'm good, thank you. Um, I I have an interesting story. Actually, I'll jump into really quickly. I had my hair cut today for the first time in five years. And uh, what five years? What, what feels like five years? <laughs> and I went to uh, the my local place. My usual barber wasn't working. Um, so I got my, my hair cut by a chap called Rene G and he proceeded to tell me about some of his celebrity clients. And I asked him who his most famous client was, to which point he told me Dwayne Johnson, AKA the rock. Um, <laughs> now immediately assuming this to be rubbish, I of course pressed him further and it turned out that Rene actually not only cuts Dwayne's hair, but is also chiefly responsible for the sideburned look of the late 90s, early noughties Dwayne Johnson uh, and actually came up with that look and is still very close friends with him today. So when asking him and telling him, basically telling him that when I was a kid, I always wanted to have the Dwayne Johnson sideburns, um, he mistook that for actually shaving some Dwayne Johnson-like sideburns onto my face, um, <laughs> <laughs> totally ruining my beard. But if you're going to have Dwayne Johnson style sideburns, at least get them done from the guy that invented the rocks. Look. I like it. That's amazing. So I'm just go. a bit sad to see you haven't got the, you haven't gone the whole hog and got the whole rock haircut going on. Not quite. Not quite. It's not too far away, actually. It's pretty close. <laughs> so um, <laughs> let's jump into this week's listener question. Uh, this week's question comes from Toby in Sydney. Australia, I guess that is. Um, not Sydney, Essex, uh, if that exists. Hi, Miles and Phil. This week, we would have seen Robin Williams reach his 69th birthday. 
And to keep people discussing his legacy, I would love to know what some of your favorite Robin Williams moments are. Ah, Phil. Whoa, Come on. That's a good one. Um, well, I grew up in the time I was a young lad in the in the mid 90s and grew up to see I think you know we talked about this a couple of weeks ago actually I saw Hook at the cinema and Jumanji all around what was that 95 93 yep. what I don't remember when Hook was I think it was around 93 something like that maybe a bit later and then I think Jumanji was 95 something like that so I'm fond of that era of Robin Williams for me. Mm-hmm. I think he's brilliant in both of those films. Um, I think you could say that was peak Robin Williams. That early, late 80s to mid 90s, I would say was probably the peak Robin Williams, wouldn't you? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, when you think about the films that he did around that time, I mean, Mrs. Doubtfire is probably, probably my favourite Robin Williams film. It's because you're a pervert, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so, yeah, favourite moments. Oh, there's too many. He's, he was such a genius. Um, yeah, I think, as I said, it's it's one of those things where I just grew up watching the films of his around that time when I think I think, he was I think you nailed it top with... form. Yeah, I think you nailed it with Hook. I think Hook, you forget though, was still a massive disappointment to a lot of people. Um, it isn't one of Spielberg's classics, even if people, you know, kids our age, you know, people who were kids at our age were definitely definitely into that movie. I remember it was a big success with, with kids, but it wasn't necessarily a critical success. Um, no. But he's still, it's still an incredible movie and his his role in there um is 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 wonderful as you know peter pan grown up basically and forgetting um this you know legacy of of never neverland and and not remembering who he was and having to relearn that i think was an incredible story arc um for me jumanji i never actually i was i never really gelled with jumanji i always it's a weird thing but i was such a big jurassic park fan as a kid that i almost felt like when Hook came along. Um, sorry, when um, uh, when Jumanji, Jumanji came along, yeah, it was almost um, a kind of cynical cash in, like with really bad CGI and um, and I did. There's something about that movie that I just didn't, I didn't love, and I don't know why because I was a huge Robin Williams fan. But, but yeah. I take that one. I actually, I actually added a couple more from that 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 era to the list. Um, a big one for me. I remember seeing in the in movie theaters was Aladdin, and his performance yeah. as as genie is amazing. Genie. That that introductory scene where we find him in the kind of cave of wonders. You know, he emerges from the lamp, and he and he yeah. sings the you know you ain't never had a friend like me, which is just oh, yeah. an incredible number. The impressions, the fact that you had these animators that could keep up with his madcap humor, and no doubt he was dropping references left, right, and center, and things that he was coming out with that even as kids, you didn't really know what they were referencing, but just his delivery made it yeah. so, so funny. Do you know what I mean? He was just a mile a minute. Yeah. He's um, just a machine gun for jokes, wasn't he? Like the, the speed he could get him out. Exactly. Unbelievable. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, 
Mrs. Doubtfire, yeah, like totally agree. That's is without a doubt my favorite, my favorite Robin Williams movie. Um, yeah, just the weirdness of the plot. I mean, imagine who imagine <laughs> writing that. What do you say? Uh, yeah. You know, basically, you have a married uh, married couple. They've got kids, um, little kids. They're not getting on too well. And at the start of the movie, she just shouts him, "I want a divorce." So he decides to dress up as an elderly nanny so that he can continue seeing his children and disrupt the relationship of his ex-wife <laughs> and Pierce Brosnan. Oh. <laughs> Do you think that would get made now? I don't think it would. It might It might actually offend someone. Yeah. Um, the other, do you know the other film I really enjoyed Robin Williams' performance in? And it doesn't really... I don't think it sticks in many people's memories, but hmm. I really liked Bicentennial Man. Do you know what? I don't think I've ever seen it. I don't think I've ever I, seen Bicentennial Man. I, quite I think just it. on the poster alone, Robin Williams is some creepy blue-eyed <laughs> robot. Yeah, it is a bit odd. Um, but I really <laughs> liked it. Yeah, Not that I've seen it for a long time, so I might watch it again now and think, oh no. But Why do I feel like that's a movie you could add to the list of movies that made Phil cry? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. No. Bicentennial Man and Eight Below starring Paul Walker. <laughs> oh God, I'll watch it I again, want- I'll let you know. I wanted to avoid some of the obvious ones, like The Good Morning Vietnams, The Goodwill Huntings. Um, mm. I think those are incredible movies. They're not movies yeah. that I dip into and I watch as frequently as I do with with the comedies. So I, I stuck with those. I mentioned last week in our rundown of the Chris Nolan uh, movies um, about insomnia. And I think as if you're looking at the kind of 2000s era of, of Robin Williams pictures, his performance in Insomnia is such a dark role really affected i think you know obviously working with christopher nolan and al pacino he was absolutely amazing in that um and it yeah. kind of signaled it was around that point where it kind of signaled his turn into darker roles um yeah like one hour know. photo was i think just before insomnia and, and that was thank you for mentioning that because i'd actually forgotten i'd actually forgotten about that when i was looking at this list and i think that is also an incredible performance and a yeah. great movie isn't it yeah um, the night listener was another one around that time. You know, there were a lot of, there were a lot of, there were a lot of movies that came out around that time. And, um, also what dreams may come. There's another one Yeah, deals with a really dark, a dark subject matter, um, with uh, himself and Cuba Gooding Jr. Um, where he, he dies in an accident and he gets to heaven. Um, and then he, he basically discovers that his, his wife, got so sad that she killed herself over the grief of losing him. And he embarks on an adventure to kind of reunite with her. That is a, that's a real weeper. If eight below mm. made you cry, Phil, just don't, don't watch that. No, um, I'd be in a mess, but that, that's a, that's also an incredible movie. Um, yeah, but I did just yeah. check actually. And hook, hook was nine, uh, hook was 91. Mm-hmm. It was a bit earlier than I thought, but yeah, I definitely saw it at the cinema. I remember. I remember getting that. My brother at the time worked at Blockbuster Video and he got a dodgy copy of that somehow through people that worked <laughs> in the film industry. And I remember <laughs> all going around to his house with my dad and watching. My dad was a huge Robin Williams fan. When Robin Williams passed away, it really, um, it was the first time I think a celebrity passing away had made me, had really kind of made me upset. I remember spending, yeah. like it, I was working from home that day and I remember spending like a morning in bed just feeling just devastated because he was he brought so much joy to me to my family i remember watching you know his movies and stuff like that when i was growing up and his humor and that madcap personality had such an, an impact on me 
almost as much as Jim Carrey, I would say. So when mm. he passed away, it was, a, yeah. it was a huge loss for me. Yeah, genuinely. Yeah, definitely. For everyone, I think. Yeah, and still sad to even think about, you know, that that whole story. So, um, mm. but would love to keep dipping into these. When I was in San Francisco once, I actually visited his house, the house from um, Mrs. Doubtfire at the beginning, you know, yeah. when the kind of camera's going up the street and it's on that kind of, yeah that hillside slope. So, yeah. So... Thank you very much, Toby, for that question. That was absolutely awesome and a great walk down memory lane for Robin Williams movies. We love answering that kind of thing. Yeah. So uh, what do you have for us in the news this week, Phil? In the news this week. So there's a couple of bits. The first one is about Tenet being delayed once again. Um, I think they're just putting it off and now they haven't even given a date. So definitely it's definitely isn't it? Mm. They yeah, they still think it's this year, but um, yeah, I can see why they're doing it. I mean, it's the kind of film you have to watch on the big screen, I think. So yeah, it, they're not going to want to, and you know that the Nolan films are going to be such a box office draw. It's just so yeah, I can see why they're doing it, but so that's been delayed. I almost um, feel like them that the, the the work that MGM did with No Time to Die, the new Bond movie, um was actually pretty smart moving it from whenever it was April to November immediately. Yeah, yeah um, straight away. Was, was pretty smart. You know, it was pretty smart. And I was actually talking with a friend of mine, Jason, about this. He's a big Bond fan and also a big Nolan fan. And it, he was saying that, you know, if they paid, if they charged, you know, $40, $50, something like that to watch it at home, would you? I think some people would, but I think in this economy, it would be, it would be difficult. But if you look at the Universal and the Disney Pixar model, they released a lot of, a lot of movies, Universal in particular, for a $20 rental at home. And I'd be interested to see how that would affect, uh, you know, Bond and, and Tenet and that kind of thing. Because at some point, they're going to have to really draw, draw a line in the sand and stick to it. Yeah. Um, it was only so long they can put them off. But these are movies that you really want to see in the in a in a theater. Yeah. Um, and then the other piece of news that I've got is that um, Julia Roberts and Denzel Washington are going to be teaming up again for the first time in thirty years. Um, so they first started together in the Pelican Brief. Yeah. Uh, and they're now going to be working on a new Netflix film called Leave the World Behind. Um, which I believe is based on an upcoming book by uh, Ruman Alam, I believe is his name. So that sounds interesting. Very cool. Yeah, so that's quite a good one. Nice to have a mm. reunion after all that time. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that um, Julia Roberts is being a lot of work, doing a lot of work, production work in television, kind of similar to how Reese Witherspoon has optioning a lot of content and that kind of thing. And she's pushed this towards Netflix. She, she had homecoming as well, which was on, uh, on Amazon prime, um, yeah. which was also a really interesting show. I don't think she's really found something that's really clicked as yet on the, on the home video market. But I think she, when you get, you know, Denzel and Julia Roberts teaming up, you know, it's going to be a big deal. So yeah, it could be incredible. Yeah. That could be good. Hmm. Um, that's all the news I had, I think. I picked up on another um, optioned new show as well, which really interested me because this comes from two of my favorite authors. So Irv- Irvin Welsh of Train Spotting and Porno Fame mm-hmm. and Brett Easton Ellis of American Psycho, Less Than Zero and so on. 
are teaming up to as co-creators on a drama series uh, about a show which is themed around the running of an American tabloid set over a number of years. So, okay, you know, like The Inquirer or something like that, or The Sun in the yeah. UK, um, and set over a series of decades. So it'll be kind of different decades, different news, that, that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. But all, you can, all I can say about that is the sensationalism of those two authors, um, the darkness as well, you know, um, that no doubt they're going to have in there, you know, various substances being passed around and that kind of thing in the, in, in the show itself, it, it, it should certainly be an interesting, an interesting watch. That's for sure. And, um, you know, probably, uh, probably set some kind of bar for very adult content when it comes to, to TV. So that's something I'm interested in. It hasn't been officially green, green lit yet, but it is, they are looking right. to, um, yeah, they're looking, that's looking to be optioned very soon. Um, so I'm cool. really, yeah, really excited about that huge brazen ellis fan um and then some trailers uh i I don't know if you you picked up on this one but i I picked up on a pretty cool trailer for a new movie starring Gemma arterton and gugu and batu raw um called summerland this is a, a a british movie um where alice is uh played by Gemma arterton a reclusive writer who is kind of resigned to like a solitary life uh, on the seaside cliffs of southern England while in World War Two, So that's one that okay. should uh, sing after your own heart there, Philip. Um, <laughs> so when someone knocks at her door and when she opens it, she finds that a young London evacuee um, has basically been given to her to adopt during the war. And she's really kind of resistant to it. Um, so obviously this is about them kind of building their relationship but it's weird seeing Gemma Arterton in a role where she's not just like a really lovely person because she always comes across really well and um but in this it she seems to be very um kind of she's holding herself back from bonding with this with this kid Frank and I think they they develop their relationship and and we start to see more about the reasons why um Alice has been kind of um consumed with grief and, and that kind of thing and um it appears to revolve around a love story that's kind of taboo love story between her and Gugu and Batu Raw. Um, and this also stars Tom, Tom Courtney. Um, so, you know, he's always, uh, he's, he always packs a punch in, in these kind of, uh, British drama comedies. Um, but it looks like a super emotional kind of love story in, uh, set in World War Two in, in Southern England. So definitely one I'd be interested in, uh, in, in watching. Yeah, that could be, that sounds like it could be good. Hmm. Um, the only trailer I saw this week was for um, a new Megan Fox film called Rogue. Um, I think the trailer only came out today, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is directed by MJ Bassett. And he, uh, she, sorry, has done, uh, I think she did Silent Hill Revelation. And she's uh, done quite a bit of TV work. So she directed a couple of episodes of Altered Carbon on Netflix and Iron Fist and a few other bits as well uh it looks quite ridiculous must be said so she's the lead um, megan fox Mm -hmm. and i think it's about uh, a mercenary unit that she leads um and they've been hired by uh the governor of an african country I, i didn't see where it was to rescue his daughter who's been kidnapped um 
And when they uh, get to the place that she has, that, that the daughter's been kidnapped at, uh, they find that it's a, uh, <laughs> it's a breeding place for, um, well, it's where poachers uh, use and it's a breeding place for uh, lions and big cat mammals. <laughs> so then they've got to deal with the kidnappers as well as, ultra-violent lions and pumas and things that seem to attack. It looks okay. very odd. Um, so who, who knows? It sounds like uh, it sounds like Commando meets Jumanji starring <laughs> <laughs> Megan Fox. Fox. Yeah. I don't like the uh, idea of the life of the animals because it sounds like they, they're going to be attacking them and therefore they're going to be shooting and killing them. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Unfortunately, but I think it's, yeah, I mean, the trailer's full of like, you know, the jump scare sort of, oh, there's a guy talking and holding a gun and then suddenly a a lion just like takes him off the screen. So it's basically aliens in set in Africa with lions and tigers instead of pumas and stuff. Yeah. Instead of, right. Instead of, instead of xenomorphs. Yeah. Yeah, It's odd, but you know, who knows? Could be good. (laughs) It's between that and money plane (laughs) too. Oh dear. Yeah. There we go. That's the, yeah, that's the only one I saw this week. This week's guest is an Emmy-nominated Hollywood costume designer known for some of the biggest film and TV hits, both critically and commercially, including Oscar-winning Crash, Field of Dreams, and recent televisual delights such as Weeds and Big Bang Theory prequel series Young Sheldon. Here for a really insightful and thought-provoking interview on the life lessons and best practices of the Hollywood costume industry is the wonderful Linda M. Bass. Hi, Linda. Welcome to the Movie Mouth podcast. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. <laughs> Great to speak with you. Uh, where, where, does, uh, where, does, where does this uh, find you in the world today? Trying to stay safe and sane like everybody else. <laughs> I have no idea when the film business is going to open up again. We're just, you know, battening down the hatches and waiting for things to calm down. Yeah, that was that was going to be one of our questions to you. So we'll we'll remove that one if you don't know when it's going to, <laughs> going to restart. Nobody, <laughs> um, knows. Nobody but, but knows. great, great to hear that you're safe and well and uh, and keeping busy. Um, obviously, you know, to, to kind of start off the interview, it's always good to I think maybe start at the beginning of of, of your career. And, you know, what we'd love to know is how did you get your your first start, which then eventually led you to becoming a costume designer as you are today? I have to say at the beginning that I've been very lucky my whole career. I just am very grateful and I'm very lucky. But I has, I've designed clothes my whole life. I used to design clothes for my dolls when I was young. I designed clothes for my friends, for my family. I never thought it was anything that I just thought everybody did it. I just really didn't think it was just an innate ability that I thought the whole world had. So when I got older, I met one of my best friends became this woman whose family started the prop union in Hollywood. And they said, you know, you really should work in movies. You should be a costume designer. I was in college. My degree was in contemporary literature and I didn't want to teach. So I had no idea what I was going to do. And I thought costume design, a great idea. 
And shortly after, I was lucky enough to get a job as the assistant. There were only two of us on Rock and Roll High School, that 1980s punk rock movie. (laughs) With the Ramones, yes. With the Ramones. (laughs) And the costume designer, the first day of shooting, said, you know, here's a bunch of shirts. I'm going shopping. You have to iron. And I had never ironed in my life. My mother didn't iron. We were very lucky. We had a housekeeper (laughs) who did all our ironing for us. I wouldn't even know how to pick up an iron. And I thought, iron? That's, that's, I have no idea. So he ended up having to stay back and iron. And I did all the shopping. And as it turned out, the producer really loved the stuff. I was an assistant for the producer very short for a very short amount of time. And he said to me, uh, my next film, I'm going to hire you to costume design. And he did. So not knowing how to iron really kicked off something <laughs> that was a lifelong career. <laughs> it's going to be very hard for a lot of parents that are listening to this who are telling their children or teaching their children to iron their clothes before they go I to know. school. Or... <laughs> it's not know, reinforcing them. I told you I was lucky, though. That is really lucky. <laughs> That's brilliant. So um, can you give us a rundown on on what details the role of a, of a costume designer and who uh, who is in your, who is within your team? Is it, you know, seamstress, a tailor, the wardrobe department? Yeah, if you could give us a bit of a rundown right. on it. I'll give you the general rundown. And I think most costume designers work this way. I, you know, it's how I work. Hmm. I, my philosophy about costume design is your job is to help tell the story. Sometimes you're tempted to grandstand and go way overboard and make it all about the costumes, but that's not what your job really is. Your job Hmm. is to help tell the story. Sometimes you have to be really quiet about it, and sometimes it really calls for the big extravaganza, loud noise of a costume. Um, so I'm always very aware of that. It's one of my true goals when I design is to simply, again, I got my degree in contemporary literature. I really mm. believe my job is to help unfold a story. And I, my usual crew is I have a creative assistant who's the assistant to the costume designer. I have a costume supervisor who's the administrative assistant who does all the billing. She runs the crew. It's a really tough job. She does everything administrative. She does the budgets with me. If I go over budget, she's the one that gets called on the carpet for it because she's the one that's supposed to keep track of the budget. Right. Uh, And then after that, I have a seamstress I've worked with since Field of Dreams. In 1987, I've been with her. And we, you know, we speak shorthand to each other. I give her a little thumbnail sketch and she could take that and make it into a fabulous costume for me. Uh, So she's another right hand person. Then I have a trailer person who's responsible for prepping all the clothes at work that day. They set all the rooms in the actors' uh, trailers. When actors have to change clothes during the day, they're responsible for getting the old costumes out, the new costumes in. And then I usually have two set people that take care of all the speaking roles on the set. If we have a big day and there's extras, then I have another costumer that deal or as many as necessary that deals with dressing the extras and watching them on set. 
So, you know, it's quite a little crew to pull it off. It's not, you know, it's a lot more work intensive than you could tell by looking at it. Yeah, I'm sure. It sounds it, definitely. (laughs) I can imagine it's quite a busy time when you're on set. It is. And also, you know, the thing that always amazes me, and I've been doing this for years, is I will be in a fitting with my assistant. And I'll say, this has to go to the Ager and Dyer. Zoya has to, that's my seamstress, has to alter this. Let's have that. This needs a new zipper. We have to dye this. And then she whisks it all away. And, you know, the next day it's back in my office for me to look at because it's all been done. It's just, you know, it's just amazing that your crew, you're only as good as your crew. That's right. A a well-oiled machine. Oh, there we go. (laughs) And I'm really loyal. I've been working with the same. My assistant I've been working with since When a Man Loves a Woman. That was, you know, in 94. So if I find people that are good, I'm really loyal. And I've had Kay, my costume supervisor, has been with me since even before Field of Dreams. We did commercials with OJ, Arnold Palmer, and Jamie Lee Curtis. That's how far back we go. Wow. Goodness me. Goodness me. One thing that, that really interests me there that, that you mentioned that we, we haven't actually talked about before, but it's how you you talk about telling a story and helping to tell that story. Do you, at what point of a project is a costume designer traditionally engaged? Is it right at the start, you know, or during, you know, that that pre-production element? And do you then receive notes from the script or, you know, or director on what the costume preferences are? Or are you usually given free reign? There's only one, uh, television is different than movies. In movies, it's the director is the only one to give you notes. Uh, and you, I go through a script with a director and we go page by page and we talk about the character and who this character is. When I read a script, when I first get a job, if I love the script or if I even like the script and usually I have to to take the job, I get visuals of what it should look like from my first read. I think it it comes to me what I think they should look like. And I go through a script with the director page by page. We talk about it. They tell me what they want. I tell them what I'm thinking. And then I take the ball and run with it. But it's Mm. showing pictures all along the way. In television, it's the showrunner. The writers really, uh, the director, because the director comes and goes. We do on right. Young Sheldon, we do 22 episodes. So a director will be here for one show or two shows. They're never a constant. So it's the showrunner who's the creator that I get my notes from. And um, there's only one showrunner in Hollywood who I love to work with more than anything. Shonda Rhimes completely trusted me. She would look at pictures, but she, in the many, many projects and the many episodes I worked with her on, she only asked for two costumes to be changed in our career together. She knows me, she trusts me, and she just lets me do my thing. And I always think I do my best work. Then I'm allowed to just have free reign and do my best work. But, you know, not everybody works that way. Wonderful, wonderful. And I mean, you've worked on so many incredible projects field of dreams is is one of my personal favorite movies of all time certainly when i was growing up um which is just a a wonderful a wonderful movie uh to live and die in la also you also outside of the film and tv route famously worked on the music video for say 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 starring 
Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson, who, right. I mean, Paul McCartney in particular, we're big Beatles fans here at the Movie Mouth podcast. How was that experience working on, firstly on a music video, but also with those two megastars? Intimidating. I mean, I am as big a fan of both of those guys as you could get. Uh, it was interesting watching the dynamic. It was interesting watching Michael Jackson. It was amazing. Um, it's much different whenever there's rock people around, even when the Ramones were on set on Rock and Roll High School, a set takes on a whole other kind of atmosphere. It's just a whole other vibe that I'm not used to because I've not done that much of it. I also did Carly Simon a, a mini music video with her and I was a huge mm. fan. Um, mm. It takes on almost kind of a circus atmosphere. There's so many roadies and there's just this kind of energy shooting through the set that you don't get in any other venue. Um, again, it was a little intimidating. I have to say <laughs> whenever I've worked with people that I am really enamored of Burt Lancaster on field of dreams, although he's such a great human, he was such a, wow you know, normal guy that I was able to deal with it after a while. But, you know, James Earl Jones, I've met people that were real idols and it took a while to like, go, okay, they're just people too. And they were great. Yeah. Well, no, I, I think, you know, we, we probably feel the same way about you, believe it or not, Linda, with, uh, with all of your credits. And, um, but I think what something that is really interesting, you mentioned the intimidation, um, but also how intimate you in in many cases will have to be on these pictures and working very very closely on on the costumes and and obviously in the in the dressing stage as well you know i love actors i don't think you could be a costume designer if you don't love actors and their input is the most important input to me you know i mm. i my my favorite days on my job is when after a fitting an initial fitting an actor will say to me you know i didn't really know who my character was until now and now i get it and working with an actor to create a character is one of the reasons why i do what i do amazing so what was your what would you say is your your favorite costume you've designed for a production you know there have been a million but on the whole <laughs> i think my favorite because it's just i love girly stuff and i love girly costumes so earth girls are easy gina davis six feet tall fabulous i mean i think her costumes and earth girls are easy in particular her wedding dress and also on that was Julie Brown wore this sort of white crinoline, um, almost slip petticoat. And she, on that petticoat, because she was a hairdresser, was tied with little velvet ribbons, were rollers and spoolies and hair clips. I love that kind of stuff. So I think Earth Girls Are Easy might have my favorite costumes in it. So on that, you, you, were, you were working with Gina Davis... Jeff Goldblum, Jeff Goldblum, and, and Jim Carrey, and one of the Wayans brothers, Damon Wayans too. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who obviously worked and collaborated with Jim Carrey on the In Living Color right. TV series as well. Right. right, that's incredible. It must be very um, rewarding when you have designed something from you know from paper and then you see it on screen and then for you to 
finally see it in the finished product on the big screen must be really rewarding. It's Mm. many times a huge relief and also really rewarding. I mean, my most difficult costume and the scariest moment when I did To Live and Die in L.A. with with William Friedkin, you know, uh, Billy has a reputation for being difficult. And many people told me before I took that film to be careful. I was fairly new in my career I had never worked with a famous director before. I was warned by former from costume designers who had worked with him. But then I met him at our meeting and I found him to be brilliant and charming. And I just was completely swept off my feet. So, but always on edge, always a little intimidated. He's one of the brightest men I've ever met, ever. And uh, Willem Dafoe's wife in that film worked in a performance art club. And his direction to me on the costumes were, I wanted a cross between Salome and Matisse. And then he left the room. (laughs) And I thought, Salome and Matisse, I'm going to kill myself. And I just, you know, went home and did my thing. I, I Sometimes I just have to leave my office and go home and be alone and think about it. And it ended up being one of my favorite costumes I've ever done. It, it was the dance number at the Voila Club in To Live and Die. Yep. And mm-hmm. to this day, when I look at those costumes, it still makes me emotional because I, I really ended up loving it. And on the day when we fit them, Billy was waiting and all the dancers were getting dressed and I was a total wreck. I was in the dressing room with the dancers, afraid to even come out. And the production designer, Lily Kilvert, ran in and she said, Billy loves them. He loves them. And I thought, oh, God, I can't believe it. It was really, I'll never forget it. It was a million years ago, and it's still one of the best days of my career. Fantastic. That's Yeah, I mean, that's one of those things. There's not many people that get to have their work immortalized in such a, a way that you can go back and look at in, you know, in such a creative way. Right. So it must be really nice. Wonderful. The downside um, is you do make mistakes and there that is also immortalized for the world to see for the rest of your life. So that's you, true. That's true. You really try to keep that down. You don't, you don't like that to happen much because it is there forever. Yeah. That's the, yeah, that is a problem, I suppose. So can you, um, can you talk a little bit, a bit more about your um, director collaborations and and ha- and also how you work with um, say set designers and lighting designers on productions as well? Um, I'm going to use Young Sheldon as an example only because it's what I'm doing now. The DP is this really great guy who's very open and really collaborative and um, – you know, it takes place in the 80s, so we have limitations on, we have kids in our show, so many times things have to be multiplied, because if you run out of time with a kid, you're using a photo double over their shoulder, and um, we, there's many more things like wallpaper and louder fabrics, we never mock the 80s in Young Sheldon. It's one of the hardest mm-hmm. parts of the show is they don't want it to look like the Goldbergs. It's it's mm-hmm. subtle. It's mm-hmm. East Texas. Um, so I always will check with the DP if I think something might photograph too loud, too much. He tests it for me before he'll put it on film and I get to look at it and we'll decide together if it works. And then the production design is the same thing. 
I want to dress someone in red and there's so many colors in the school and everything. I always have to, and, and it's Joe Lucky who did weeds with me. I love him. Mm. Well, I'll call Joe and say, this is what I'm thinking. What do you think? And they'll say, I don't know. Their lockers are red and they're going to be passing the lockers. So you really need a really open and collaborative relationship with both of those departments to pull it off. Yeah, to make it all gel together on screen, right. yeah, it's got to be... Um, you don't want yeah. it to clash. You know, if Sheldon's in a plaid shirt and he's sitting on a plaid couch, that's not going to work. Mm. And and actually talking more about that, um, with with the volume of productions out there now, the volume of episodes um, and the, the, the size of casts as well in a lot of productions seems to seems to be increasing. Is, is costume design now more creating garments from scratch or or is there a is there a higher element of actually purchasing uh, garments and items and then perhaps altering them you know television is much different than movies in movies you have the luxury of time where if mm. you can't find what you like you just design it and make it and you have enough time to do that tv moves so quickly you just don't have that luxury i find movies much easier to do because you have so much more time uh, so in television, you still have to be really creative. You know, this almost works, but it looks too contemporary. It doesn't look 80s. Let's change the zipper, dye the color. You know, you, you adjust it. You take what you found in a store and you make it look the way it should. So there's a lot of that kind of adjusting to do. But with only a five-day prep on a show with many actors, you don't have time to design much. Sure. Yeah. If I'm lucky, a producer will say coming up when I did Brooklyn Bridge a million years ago, um, I, the producer and director called me in the office and they thought, oh, God, now what? And they were giving me like a four week lead time because they were writing an episode with a wedding. And so I had enough time, even though it was TV, I got to design the whole wedding because they were smart enough to give me that lead time. And let's not forget, this yeah. was a this was a position that uh, turned into an Emmy nomination on Brooklyn Bridge. Is that right? It did, and one of my favorite jobs. That's brilliant! Congratulations! Yeah. yeah. So, is there? Um, although you know your CV, your long list of credits has a lot of uh, you've worked with a lot of big names, but is there is there a particular actor that you would you would love to design a costume uh, for, or you know that you've not worked with yet? Oh, wow, that I've not worked with yet. Let, I have to think about that a second. Phil always comes up with the tricky questions. Yeah, no, that's I love that. very interesting. I like those ones. <laughs> um, you know, I just watched The Great. I don't know if you guys seen it, but it's great. Mm. It's just great. And what's her name? Her older sister went to school with my daughter. You know, uh the girl that's in the lead. I can't remember her name. Oh, totally blank. Um, she I'd like to work with. Oh, um, I know exactly who you mean. It's going to come to me. Elle Fanning. Elle Fanning. I would love to. Dis yeah. I think she's wonderful. I really do. And after watching The Great, I thought it would be so fun to design for her. And then um, I just read a book. It's called uh, Daisy and the Six. It's about the rock scene in L.A. in the 70s. And, you know, I would kill to do that as a movie. I think 
that Reese Witherspoon bought it for TV. I think it's going to be a Hulu production. And in okay. the lead is, uh, the name escapes me again, her brother just committed suicide, Eva Marie Presley's daughter. Uh, Kehoe is her last name, and I can't remember. I think it's Raleigh Kehoe. Oh, uh, Riley. Riley, Riley Kehoe. Kehoe. I mean, she's gorgeous. She's six feet tall and sort of a newcomer on the scene, but I've seen a few things she's done. I'd really love to design for her as well. That has an, that has an incredible cast. Sam Claflin, Riley Keough, uh, Suki Waterhouse. It could be a really exciting one. I love what uh, Reese Witherspoon is doing. Me too. Where she said she's no longer waiting for roles. She's going out going out and creating them. She's buying. Which I thought was just an incredible Everything approach. Yeah. She's buying. Have you read the book? The book is so good. It's so fun. It's just like this great ride that you, you could read it in a day. Absolutely going to now. I'm going to add it to my uh, to my Kindle list. And I have a long okay. plane flight coming up next week. So I'll be uh, I'll probably be absorbing that next week. Okay, good. Um, so how, how one, one interesting element, I think, that's associated to costume design is how you could work across, you know, different projects that might be different genres, such as sci-fi, you know, fantasy period pieces. Um, but also, you know, there, there'll, be an el- there'll be a cultural element to those. How do you research cultural materials or more conceptual costumes, depending on the script or project? What I usually do is I hit the streets with my camera. I just go into neighborhoods. And if someone's wearing something interesting, you'll see a homeless person that wears the most interesting like boot combination with a sock. I take pictures. I just go around the first few days that I'm really starting to dig in on a project. And if I don't have a really clear picture, sometimes I'm lucky enough to really see it very clearly. If not, I usually spend a couple days out in the streets with my camera taking pictures because people watching is a great resource. Yeah, it is. You know, it's it's that kind of thing, just going out and, as you said, taking pictures, having a collection of those that you can refer to is just invaluable, isn't it? It is. And then if I come up with an idea... I'll send a picture. If it's a director that I have a great relationship with, Alex Graves is, well, Paul Haggis and Alex Graves, I think are the two really the smartest TV directors I've worked with. And I'm sorry if I've left someone out, whoever listens to this, but um, (laughs) I would send Alex a picture and say, this is what I'm thinking of for Claire's hat, or this is what I'm thinking of for Bob's shoes. And Alex will totally respond and say, yeah, you know, or not quite. If I feel comfortable enough with a director, I send them these conceptual ideas that are just pieces. And then you just put it all together and voila, somehow you've created a character. Obviously, your, um, as we said before, your credits list is very diverse. Do you have, do you prefer contemporary or period design or is it just a love for all of it really but if you have one that you prefer is there any specific productions that you worked on that would that were highlights for those you know I love doing period because you get to just get into the period I read everything about the period I look through magazines and catalogs and you do well it's the thing I love about my job also one of my favorite things is you you live in a whole other world that isn't open up to you if you weren't doing this movie. 
I mean, I'm getting off subject a minute, but even to live and die in LA because it was about counterfeiting. I got to drive around with DEA agents and, you know, when they picked up counterfeit money all over LA for a day, who gets to do that? It was just so cool. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And, but when I did the, this movie in the mood, it was Patrick Dempsey and Beverly G. Angelo, Mm -hmm. Phil Alden Robinson directed it before Field of Dreams. And it was just this fun, zany care, uh, story about L.A. in the 40s. I loved doing that. And I loved doing the costumes. And we had crowd scenes, hundreds of people that I would just dress like they were little dolls because it's hats and gloves and handbags and every piece, you know, pins, the accessories were just so big and part of the, the period. So I would say, even though not many people saw that movie, I loved doing that movie. And then for contemporary, I think my favorite project ever is, uh, and it's television, but Weeds. I think Weeds, I love that. It took you to every kind of stratus you could think of. Every kind of person was in that. And working with Mary Louise, I loved. It was just, it was, it was like dessert. I loved doing that show. <laughs> We're hoping that comes back at some point. It's, uh, it's been a real, um, I think, slow burn in, in, for a lot of people, pun intended, um, while in quarantine, because I think, you know, a lot of people have managed to go back and rewatch it or, or start it f- from fresh on many of the streaming platforms. So it's picked up a lot of interest over the last few months. And well, I'm, I was really excited room, to see that you worked on that. Um, you know, I've talked to Mary Louise and the rumor is, is that it really is going to go back into production. It's so contemporary because it's female centric. Mm. It's about a strong woman. I just think mm. in this pandemic age, starting new shows are maybe not the smartest idea. Go back to what you know how to do because shooting to begin with is going to be complicated. So I think there's a very good chance we will see weeds again. Wonderful. And and talking about Mary Louise and, uh, you know, the feedback that that, uh, that you had on Willem Dafoe's um, uh, costume as well around the Matisse feedback. How much do you take feedback from the actors on their costumes for, you know, elements like movement, fit and comfort, for example? Is that an often part of the process or is the director or showrunner's vision usually over overlooking their comfort in uh, in those cases? You know, it depends on who the showrunner or the director is. But for me, I always start with the actor. If I see an actor standing on the set fidgeting with their costume because they're not comfortable in it, it makes me go crazy. I can't, I won't ever, I always say to an actor in a fitting, always, if you're uncomfortable with this, tell me now. Don't, I will never put anyone in anything they're uncomfortable in. If it be, ever becomes an issue, and I say this in my meetings with directors and showrunners, if the actors have a problem, I'll get back to you. And if the actors have mm. a problem with their original concept, I always talk to them about it and we, I don't think there's a time in my career where we didn't work to make the actor comfortable. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. It affects their performance. I mean, you know, it really, you do, it's the last mm. thing you want to worry about is an actor being uncomfortable in a costume. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. As you said, it is going to really affect their performance if they're not if they're not comfortable in it. It's you know must be horrible, <laughs> right? They'll fidget with it, and they're they're go you know that's not part of what the performance should be. Sure. So, Linda, I think what we like to do to close out our interviews um, is to ask if you can give any uh, advice 
to people that might be interested in a career in costume design, um, you know, to help people start out and any advice you can give? I think getting a job in any production, even if it's not in the costume department, try to be a PA. Um, I always hire PAs and I have at times hired interns as well. I, my PAs, if they're good, I've had three PAs make it into the union from working with me. And I really helped promote that because they deserved it because they were really good mm. at what they did and they worked really hard. Uh, but even if you're in the production department, you're on a set during your, you know, you just make friends with the costume de- designer, make friends with the producer. Look at, I, you know, was a, a schlub making $50 a week in rock and roll high school. <laughs> and the next thing I knew I was a costume designer. So you just have to have perseverance. You really can't give up. If you really want to do it, you could get, you could do it. Getting into the union is not that easy, but it happens all the time. So, you know, I, uh, Larry Kasdan did an article mm-hmm. once and I read it and he said, the only difference between me and all these directors that never made it is I never gave up. And that's the only difference. And I think that's very wise advice. Hmm. What a, a wonderful way to to finish the interview, Linda uh, Bass. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll My let way. you get back to whatever it is that you're doing in quarantine. We hope that Hollywood's going to reopen soon so that you can uh, you can get back uh, to putting these wonderful costumes on these uh, on these wonderful actors in these wonderful productions. But thank you so much for your time. Sure, be safe, you guys. Take care. Thanks very much, Linda. Bye bye. What do you think of that interview, Phil? It was incredible, wasn't it? Brilliant. Wow. Again, such, I think, you know, we always do this with the guests we have, but it's always so interesting to hear the different sides of uh, the industry. And yeah, there's, there was so much I hadn't thought of that costume designers do as well as designing costumes. Yeah. Um, and how intimate their role is with these major celebrities and how they, how they navigate a script and a director and they execute a vision mm. and and on top of that, Linda is one of the nicest people that I've ever spoken to. Um, you know, she was just such a genuine, amazing person. And hearing her entire career, which is, you know, it goes right back to uh, to live and die in L.A. And hearing those stories about that career was just incredible. And, you know, mm. if there's anyone that's looking to to make it, you know, in, in, in the industry, we're going to keep bringing you these inside interviews with people. Um, who you know you may only know from the black credit screen that you see at the end or the beginning of a movie and wonder what they do we're going to bring you more of this stuff so we've got a lot more of this to come and please do reach out and let us know if uh, if there's any specific areas of the industry that you'd like us to elaborate more on with specific guests so in this week's review section we have a couple of watch at home wonders we'll start off with yourself, Phil, you sat down to watch Netflix's new uh, fantasy show, Cursed. What did you make of that? I did. So, yeah, this is the, um, as you said, Netflix fantasy drama. It's created by Tom Wheeler and uh, Frank Miller, who you may well know. Oh, awesome. Famous. Yeah, famous for Daredevil, 300, Sin City, iconic graphic artist. Dark Knight um, Returns, yeah. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. So this is um, it's another retelling of the Arthurian legend, but mm. this time 
centers around uh, Nimue, uh, who's played by Catherine Langford. Um, and she's a young Fey woman with powers that she's not yet fully in control of. Mm-hmm. Um, and then following on from, uh, let's say, I'm not because I'm not going to spoil it, let's say some events that happen in the first mm-hmm. episode or two. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Nimue and future King Arthur, played by um, Devon uh, Terrell, uh, cross paths and then they go on a quest to find Merlin, the wizard, um, and he's played by Gustav Skarsgård. Um, believe it or not, there's a magic sword in there as well. Must be, surely. <laughs> so I'll admit with, with this, it took me a while to get into it. It's um, And again, you know, it's only the first couple of episodes that I've watched, but mm-hmm. I think the first one was close to an hour. The second's about 48 minutes. But looking at the rest of the episodes, they're all around the, the hour mark. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it took me a while to get, get into it, mainly due to some seriously ropey performances mainly in the first episode from the two that I saw and mostly from smaller uh, role characters, you know, sort of more extra type roles. Yeah. There was some really truly sort of soap opera cringe worthy uh, scenes that I I found a bit awkward to watch. Um, One thing I also found really off putting and it's because I, if I get a little bit, maybe not bored but i'm not quite into it yet i sort of start looking at things in the background of of what's going on and i noticed and it really put me off that in a lot there's there's a few sort of biggish battles and fights going on in the background in the first episode Mm -hmm. and although there's some really good stuff i really noticed loads of like people that were meant to be hitting each other either with fists or swords and in the background, they're just doing that typical, they they might not quite know that they're on screen and they're not hitting each other at all. It's like, you know, they're pretending to stab each other, but they're like about three foot apart and the guy falls down dead. Type and it is really noticeable. Yeah. And I just thought... You just can't get the extras not... these days, can you? <laughs> you just can't get them. <laughs> so it's a small thing, but that I found that quite funny. Um, so yeah, I found myself looking at that more than listening to what was being said. Um, yeah. The production value, though, is is very high. Uh, it's got some really decent CGI. The locations are great. It's really nicely shot. It looks great. Um, I think Netflix have obviously spent some serious cash on it. Um, the The second episode helped to set up the story and develop the characters a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and it obviously it helps that it's such a well told, uh, you know, well known story. Um, so you just you know so you sort of know the characters um i found myself getting into it a bit more after that after the shaky start um mm-hmm. it's actually more well, i should have expected it being frank miller but it's actually more gritty and graphic than i thought it was going to be from yeah i was going to say what's the kind of target audience here is this well like it's a, weird because i watched R-rated it from 18, the f- or is it it's probably yeah it's got to be because it's pretty gory um but it's weird because the first sort of 10 minutes it felt like it was a kids show Honestly, it's it interesting because like... they've 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 picked um Catherine Langford there who was Hannah Baker in 13 Reasons Why so which is obviously aimed at that kind of young adult audience and so yeah. this must really be kind of baying to that audience is what i assumed it looks like a you know another warrior nun you know another you know yeah. I, mean, I think it is 
Yeah. I think it's fair to say that, but it's definitely got more more sort of gritty gore. Um, you know, a lot of chopping people in half and blood yeah. splattering everywhere. Not quite on the 300 scale of things, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's a, it, as I said, it, it took me a bit by surprise. It's it's not out of place because of the story that's being told, but I think it, yeah, it, yeah, it's a bit of a surprise. Um, I must say it's nice to see a, a strong female lead in Catherine Langford because she's doing a really good job so far from what I've seen. She's one of the mm-hmm. standouts in, in the, the cast so far. Um, I mean, th- there's nothing groundbreaking here at all it's it's all pretty predictable and the the writing and overall performances are a bit a little bit subpar mm-hmm. i think if you were needing something to feed your withdrawal of game of thrones it might scratch your itch for some medieval fantasy but it's nowhere near the same level it's it, even though you know it's had a lot of money thrown at it it's yeah it's just not it's not as it's just not as not as polished i would say it's it's not unwatchable though. It's you know you may want to give it a try, uh, and if you do, the whole first season is on Netflix now. Alrighty, so uh, a recommendation or not much of a recommend- recommendation? Yeah, I mean, again, I've done two episodes, so it's mm. a bit harsh to to write it off after two. But I, I would sounds like it got better from the first ten minutes. From the it way did, you- yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you know. Uh, I'd give it a go. I'd give it a go. Okay. Sounds good. So I sat down this week to watch the new sci-fi series, Brave New World, based on Aldous Huxley's thought-provoking 20th century novel. Um, Actually, one of my favorite books when I was growing up and rebelling, of course. (laughs) Um, This TV adaptation was greenlit by... Uh, NBC Universal here in the US. It's just debuted on their new streaming platform. Yes, another streaming platform, uh, <laughs> which is called Peacock. Um, obviously, the NBC logo has the the peacock with the feathers. Oh yeah. Um, so this is debut. This is actually live now here in the US. Um, it's going to be available on Amazon Prime from uh, the fourteenth of August, twenty twenty. I believe all all episodes will be available at once um, in in Europe. This stars, um, it's actually got a really incredible cast. This is this stars uh, Alden Ehrenreich, who was most recently seen in uh, Solo, Star Wars movie, as, as uh, Han Solo. Um, Jessica Brown Finley, um, who uh, is a, an English actress who's been in a number of kind of TV shows um, and so on. I think one mm-hmm. of them was, was uh, Black Mirror, one of the more prominent ones. Um, and also Harry Lloyd, who plays the the book's uh, protagonist, Bernard Marx, um, here in a kind of slightly slightly different role. Um, and Har- Harry Lloyd is another British actor. This is all very um, British-led as a show. Right. Um, and it's set in a kind of dystopian, uh, you know, kind of future where uh, people aren't really allowed to feel they're not really allowed to have true emotions they're not allowed to be monogamous um, and choose one sexual sexual partner for example Um, they're not allowed any privacy there's one scene where um, Bernard Marx is on the toilet and uh, his boss just holographically appears in front of him um, (laughs) finishes a conversation and then tells him to clean himself up 
Um, so <laughs> oh, it, it's set in a, in a, in a really strange um, kind of future, the kind of thing that we haven't really seen before. And it, it treads a line between being, um, you know, almost kind of being a send up to actually being quite dramatically serious somewhere between, you know, a more, um, a more crystalline Blade Runner future, more like Minority Report, for example. Yeah. Um, you know, everyone's traveling around through hover cars um, and, and rockets. Where this gets slightly different from the book and, and starts to kind of um, break out into its own um, direction is there is a, um, it's revealed that there is a theme park called Savage Land, which is in the US. And all of our protagonists are in New London, except for Alden Ehrenreich, who lives in a beaten up shack in the on the outskirts of this Savage Land theme park. And in the theme park, they basically are showing, reenacting the times that we live in now to, to teach people of New London about emotion, about marriage, about theft. There's even a scene where they recreate a Black Friday sale in a mock supermarket showing how people <laughs> battle over bargain price TVs. Oh, um, and Alden Ehrenre- Ehrenreich works there. He lives on the outskirts with his mum, played by Demi Moore. Um, okay. and, uh, and he has a really kind of different, completely different earthy lifestyle. He basically, it's basically like a, you know, being somewhere in, you know, kind of the outskirts of Texas somewhere, um, right now is basically where he is. And every week, every day, almost a new rocket will arrive from new London with these guests that, that are on there. Um, right. and it, it's a very interesting split between this sci-fi future and this savage land set in in the U.S. and and the different lifestyles of each. Um, one other element that is worth discussing as well is how everybody that is from New London or based within this society is given their own ranking from birth. So even before they're born, when they're just embryos, they're given you know alpha or beta statuses, and they will mm. treat each other differently based on that on that level. And so there's some really nice interactions there around social demographic and class structures. From a from a a show perspective, um, I wasn't really expecting a lot from this as a big fan of the book. And and actually, when I distanced myself from the book, I I started to have a lot of fun. Um, bearing in mind, I only watched two episodes, but I really did. St- I started to enjoy this. I started to invest in it. Um, from the from the opening scene, uh, Harry Lloyd, who plays Bernard Marx, almost appears like a uh, like like a like a villain of the piece, and it, it, he actually starts to become more of a protagonist, which becomes quite interesting in seeing how he's kind of um, you know move, moving away from from this kind of society. Jessica Brown Finley as well is very brave in in her performance here. There's a lot of nudity in this. There are a lot of um, you know, scenes of, 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 of mass sexual encounters of raves and all that kind of thing. This is real R rated. Um, this is the kind of thing I can imagine people either loving or hating. Um, and, uh, as a big, and, and as someone that's kind of a fan of sci-fi, but also has seen enough bad sci-fi to know when something's worth putting down personally, I really enjoyed this. I thought this was really good. Um, it has had some mixed reviews. Um, I would suggest if you're a fan of Black Mirror, this almost feels like an extended season of a Black Mirror episode 
and and okay. actually one of the directors on on here um Owen Harris directed a few episodes of Black Mirror most recently the um the striking vipers episode uh where you have the two guys playing the the video game and that's all I'll say oh, about yeah. that if you haven't seen yeah. it um yeah. so you know it has that feel it definitely has that look and feel of being a kind of extended Black Mirror. So if you're a fan of Black Mirror, this is definitely worth a try. If you're not so much a fan of kind of dystopian sci-fi, um, you know, uh, perhaps not. This is probably quite close in, in in example as well to the likes of Westworld. But where for me, I found Westworld to be perhaps on purpose, a clinically cold production based on the fact mm. it's dealing with, you know, sentient um, cyborgs and robots. This is based on real people who want to become uh, emotional, emotional people. And, uh, I, I took a lot away from it. I'm definitely, I definitely want to see the rest of this. So it gets a recommendation from me. So in this week's video store corner, we are discussing the 1990 comedy starring Rick Moranis and Steve Martin, my blue heaven. We are. Had you seen this before? I hadn't seen it before. No. It was a pleasant surprise when you suggested this to me. Uh, had you seen it before? I had not. No, and oh, okay. I'm a That's huge good. fan of both the the leads in this. Yeah, um, and also Joan Cusack, who we'll talk a bit more about, who's also yeah. absolutely amazing. Uh, yeah. But of course, also the fact um, that it's written by Nora Ephron, the incredible Nora Ephron, um, who of course wrote um, "You've Got Mail," when when Harry met Sally. Basically, every incredible, um, oh, Sleepless in Seattle is another one. Every incredible um, rom com that you ever saw in the 90s um, w- was written by the late uh, Nora Ephron, who wrote this. But this is in a different territory. This is a little bit more madcap. And this was mm. recommended to me by my neighbor here in New York, who um, loves movies, can pr- pretty much quote any movie at the drop of the hat, and quoted Steve Martin's character pretty much nonstop the other night when I told him I was thinking about watching this. So by the time I finally sat down to watch it, I basically felt like I'd already seen it. Um, but what did you think of it? I I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really good. It was nice. Do you know what? I hadn't seen I hadn't seen a film with uh, Rick Moranis playing a lead for quite a while, and I forgot mm. how good he was. You know, I know why he sort of retired from acting and stuff to deal with family issues, but it's. Uh, it made me think it's a real shame that you don't get to see him as much anymore. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I really liked it. I, Steve Martin, you know, and again, this was sort of around peak Steve Martin time, wasn't it? 1990. Absolutely. Around, Absolutely. Yeah. Doing the completely over the top stereotypical mob. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's why this is why it was, it was weird that neither of us had seen it because we both love comedy of that time. Yeah, and and maybe it's more of a it wasn't it wasn't that popular in the UK. I think this this is definitely aimed at a US market that are aware of the stereotypes in the US. Mm. Um, you know, around where you're from, about being from New York or wherever. Um, but just to give you the kind of an overview on the plot here, this is about a, an uptight FBI agent played by Rick Moranis, who's just brilliant at playing uptight. Rather than we always used to see him as being a bit of a doofus. But here he's actually a bit of a, an ass kicker. Um, we actually see yeah. him beating up quite a few people in this, playing against type. And I really enjoyed him in the role. I think he was having a lot of fun. 
so he he has to protect a a larger than life mobster who allegedly has a heart of gold um who basically gets relocated under the the FBI's witness protection plan to the suburbs of San Diego from I, I'm guessing New York um and uh, and and Steve Martin obviously plays that mobster Vinny Antonelli um who every opportunity will give uh, Rick Moranis the slip you know do do whatever he, whatever it takes to basically get away but then when he gets caught it's almost like he was intending to come back so you <laughs> yeah. never really know if he if he is a good guy or if he's a bad guy yeah and he plays that really well um, oh he's so annoying isn't it but in that completely believable way yeah yeah every time he gives him the slip and you get those nice little comedy moments before rick moranis notices that he's giving him the slip because it's always in a little clever clever way isn't it absolutely absolutely what would you say were your kind of kind of some of your favorite moments from this i i really liked i think my favorite thing is the turn of rick moranis being this sort of straight down the line out of you know out of the training academy fbi agent that he is yeah. you know yeah. i mean his wife leaves him because he's too organized you know he's got a a, a system for everything and, and as she says he's got a system for eating pan- pancakes so that the bottom one gets as much syrup as the top one <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah his transformation from being the straight down the line fbi agent and then hanging out with Vinny a lot more, and although being really annoyed with him at first and sort of exasperated by him, mm. uh, there's that great scene where um, Vinny gives him the slip out of the hotel room like the night before they're going to testify. Well, they, they travel. They they travel from San Diego overnight on a plane to to New York, don't they? To, yeah. Due to the the kind of court where he has to do the kind of court. Um, deposition the test that he has to yeah. testify doesn't he yeah yeah and he gives him the slip and then uh he finds him in the in the club with a load of like mob mates and um and then there's this awesome scene where they because oh because earlier in that they they'd gone suit shopping and steve martin had kitted rick moranis out in this mobster like suit um, all, all shark skin, basically. Every suit yeah. that, that Steve Martin wears in this is shark skin. Yeah, a shark, like a three-piece shark skin suit. Yeah, and um, <laughs> yeah. So there's this amazing scene in the club where he's trying to get him to loosen up, and you know they're, they're they're trying to pick up a couple of women, and there's this great scene where they do the merengue dance. And it's hilarious, isn't it? It's a, such a good scene where you can see Rick Moranis is getting into it. And when he finally like pulls off like a move, he's copying Steve Martin doing these moves. And when he finally pulls it off, it, it's just his little face when he when he's so pleased with himself that he's pulled off this particular dance move. I just found it really funny. Merengue. Um, when they're, yeah. they're dancing merengue, aren't they? Yeah, it's, it's really good. I love that. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good little bits in this little funny nods to bits. I, I quite like, there was a scene where at the beginning where uh, just after his wife's left him um, and uh, 
Rick Moranis is getting some work done in the office and he's on his own and he's got like the TV on and then the national anthem comes on and he, he's on his own. He's alone, yeah. Night, and it, yeah, yeah, and yeah. He just, he stands up, he stands up when the national anthem comes on just to show his, uh, you know, how by the book he is. It's brilliant. I think uh, the character is so good. Yeah. Yeah. I also like that you see um, Steve Martin in his, or Vinny in his, uh, in his witness protection house, and he's mowing the lawn, but he's mowing the lawn in, in his three-piece suit. <laughs> Absolutely, he's, he's in San Diego, California heat. There's these kids running around. It's the middle of the suburbs, white picket fences, and Steve Mine's got, as you say, his three-piece. It's kind of like a red sharkskin suit, and yeah. his high top like hairstyle with like the little yeah. fringe, the little bangs part hanging down, <laughs> and he's just he's just pushing yeah. a mower like he, it's just like a typical Jersey gangster. He's pushing the mower around. He just he just stops. and goes, "What a day for a mow, eh?" <laughs> That's it. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. This is absolutely brilliant. Um, I mean, there, there's so many. There are so many good scenes in this. I loved. I loved all the scenes with with Rick Moranis dancing and and loosening up. I thought that was just brilliant. And then you know later on you see him actually dancing at a like a wedding or something, and and he's dancing the merengue, and he actually asks them to play merengue as well. Um, yeah. I loved the scene where Vinny Steve Martin goes shopping in the kind of small town suburban um, supermarket. And he's kind of walking around and like people are trying to help him and he's just disgusted because he's just not used to that in, in New York. Some guy walks past him and he's like, um, have a beautiful day, sir. And he's like, fuck you. <laughs> it's just, yeah. It's that, that's the kind of thing that you see that in uh, in New York. And then when he leaves, he leaves the supermarket and the, the, store, the store manager is like, um, sir, would you like to you know, fill out a, a survey for anything that you, you weren't satisfied? And he's like, Arugula. I haven't had arugula in six weeks. And the manager's like, what's that? He's like, it's a vegetable. <laughs> <laughs> I love Just his whole shtick. I love the fact that he can't go anywhere without committing some sort of crime. And it doesn't matter yeah. how petty it is. Like in the supermarket, yeah. he, he nicks the uh, pricing gun and then just prices up a load of steaks. Like, and it, like 12, it was ridiculous. Like 12 cents well. or it's was $12 or something. And he's got about 40 steaks. Or something. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, yeah. There's that great, yeah. there's a great stuff as well. It's like this kind of character stuff that happens where he's always just kind of saying he's like middle, he's like middle management. So like, he's never actually killed anyone in the mafia, but then yeah. he also knows a lot about killing people. And, uh, and he starts <laughs> talking about his, so he, you know, he has a lot of information about shooting people, but he again, professes that he hasn't done it. And yeah. he'd be like, Richie loved to use 22s because the bullets are small and they don't come out the other end, like a 45. See a 45 will blow a barn door out the back of your head. And there's a lot of dry cleaning involved, but a 22 will just rattle around like Pac-Man until you're dead. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, but he's like, how do you know so much? He's like, I don't know. I heard about it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> While his lawyer's like trying to tell him to shut up. Yeah. Shut the hell up, Vinny. Yeah. I, I was, uh, this was a, a really surprising um, movie. When, when A movie that maybe you're not familiar with seeing it in the DVD or the video store when you were younger. Um, but having two amazing people in it, um, and, and, uh, that you would absolutely love to have watched as a kid. So mm. if, if you're of that ilk, you know, of watching these kind of movies, you know, whether it was, you know, more spoof, like with, you know, the naked gun, 
um, or some more of the, the, the kind of kid stuff like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids with uh, with Rick Moranis um, and all every Steve Martin movie that, that has ever been, then you, I think you absolutely have to watch this. This is a yeah. this could well be a stone cold classic. I just think it's a it's just a really enjoyable comedy, genteel, yeah. enjoyable. Joan Cusack's comedy. brilliant in it as well. Yeah, yeah, isn't she? She's really good. She plays yeah. the. Uh... Was she the district attorney? She's the DA in the town, yeah, and she's constantly yeah. trying to arrest um, Steve Martin. But because Steve Martin has been uh, in the is in the witness protection program, every time he gets arrested, and let's face it, deservedly so, because he's like stealing people's cars and <laughs> pretending that he just forgot it was it wasn't his car. And it's the priest's um, car. <laughs> it was a priest's car. Yeah, um, and then, and there's that great scene where. They they pull him over. He's I think he's he's there's a there's, he's stolen a ton of books in in the priest's car, and they've got all these books laid out. It's the same book, and uh, and the police officer asks him. He's like, so uh, why did you steal these books? He's like, I didn't steal these books. He's like, well, why have you got so many of them? He's like, what if I want to read it more than once? <laughs> yeah, it's like twenty five copies of it. It's like twenty five <laughs> copies of the same book. It's just that kind of the kind of guy you just can't get through to. There's just no sense. Yeah, and then he's so used to talking his way out of any situation. It's just he can't do anything else. Exactly. He's always on guard. Yeah, I love the end of this as well. Without spoiling it, I thought the end of this movie was it was really nice, sincere ending. Yeah, it was. uh, Just a Um, just a yeah. Do you want to hear some trivia for this? Go on. Yeah, from my favorite. IMDb page. Uh, Let's do it. And I, have you read any of this? Any trivia? Because I think one no. of these is going to shock you. <laughs> okay. So the first one, this is brilliant. So originally, Steve Martin was cast to play Barney Coopersmith, who is Rick mm-hmm. Moranis' role instead, yep. with Arnold Schwarzenegger playing the role of Vinnie Antonelli. What? <laughs> yeah. What? So it was... Uh, then it goes, what's it say? It says, Schwarzenegger was soon thereafter offered the role of Detective John Kimball in Kindergarten Cop, which is also in 1990, and left the production. Failing to find another suitable Vinny for Martin's Coopersmith, Martin offered to take on the role of Vinny himself. Uh, producers agreed and then cast Rick Moranis as Coopersmith, who had originally I, I been mean, considered for the role, but was unavailable until then. I I don't think, I honestly don't think the script itself, in terms of the material, the jokes, would have been strong enough for Schwarzenegger. No. I feel like, not. I'm not saying Nor Ephraim's script wasn't incredible, because it is, but I think that Schwarzenegger wouldn't, probably wouldn't have the level of ingenuity that... Can you, can you imagine Martin Arnie trying to put on world. like an over-the-top like, How uh, would Italian do gangster? He would not, that Fuck would you. not have... <laughs> as much as I love Arnie, I just think that's one thing he definitely couldn't pull off. Are you trying to say capiche? <laughs> <laughs> Let's dance the merengue. Um, right, next trivia. John Travolta was Steve Martin's next choice for the role of Vinny after Arnold Schwarzenegger left it. It could have been good. Yeah, I think that could have really worked. Uh, mm-hmm. But he turned it down to do Look Who's Talking To. Oh dear. Also 1990. Um Fun fact, Julie uh, Bavasso, Vinny's mother in the film, mm-hmm. uh, also played John Travolta's mother in Saturday, Saturday Night Fever and Staying Alive. 
I loved her in this. I loved that scene at the airport. <laughs> it's great, isn't <laughs> it? Yeah. <laughs> it's so just talking Italian. Mama. Yeah, mama. Mama. <laughs> um, uh, there was another fact. Uh, re, it was retitled to The Foolish Captive in the Netherlands due to the fact that a Dutch movie with exactly the same title uh, was released the same year. The Foolish mm. Captive. That's good, isn't it? I, d- uh, I didn't love the name. The name is very generic. It's odd. Yeah, I don't. It's a very I, I generic think it name. It. No. Yeah. It's a bit weird. Yeah. I did. When I was looking it up, there's like four films called that. <laughs> Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last one. This is more a bit of a, a of a goof, really, than a, than a, some trivia. But there's that good scene at the beginning where uh, Rick Moranis is asking Steve Martin for his social security number, and she's trying to lie, even though he doesn't need to. Uh, but it's the fact that if you were in the witness protection program, you would have been issued a new one. Therefore, oh. the FBI wouldn't have been asking for it. Don't shoot all. this we movie down. It. This movie's too good for you to shoot it down. No, it is. I'm I don't sorry. want anyone that's to just, shoot this movie down. That's just being picky. That's that's my trivia section for this week. That was, that was truly, truly, truly wonderful. <laughs> I like I like how the whole romance piece kind of moves towards... At the start, you're not sure where it's going to be because both of their wives leave them in the very first scene, introductory scene to both their characters. Mm. And you're not sure whether Steve Martin's going to be paired up with Joan Cusack or Rick Moranis. And yeah. then you're kind of not sure, even you know when he buys the Mets ticket, uh, the baseball tickets for the Padres yeah. for uh, for Joan Cusack and, and her kids, and uh, and and Rick Moranis is like, oh, um, is, she, is she your type? Are you into her? And he's like, no, I know you're into her. She's not my type. I like him. I don't know, kind of dirty or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then he just he has that 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 great scene. Uh, what is it at the end when they're in like the the he's like in the in the in the supermarket again this isn't a spoiler um but he just he just kind of turns around and you just see this kind of like very mobster wife looking kind of oh, red yeah. he- short red head and like print. all the leopard print exactly yeah um just kind of just kind of standing there and uh in like the frozen food section and he just uh he just goes over to her and he's like uh what does he say? Something like um, he's like, you shouldn't be standing in the frozen food aisle. Yeah, and it's, you're gonna melt like, all the food or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And she's yeah. just like, you're so hot, you're gonna melt all the food. And she's like, oh, <laughs> I'm Vinny. Like oh, that would work, God. you know. Like that's just his his perfect level. Like that's just the level he's aiming for. And then they literally walk off arm in arm <laughs> from that. Yeah. Yeah, just walked straight off arm in arm, having literally just met each other. Yeah, but that right. was uh, yeah, brilliant, brilliant movie, and just such a pleasure to watch something that hadn't really heard of, hadn't really seen before, with two amazing actors in it that you love from those those movies back back in the day, um, mm. and then and then finding it and and you know probably putting it in the rotation for years to come. Yeah. So that was my blue heaven then in this week's video store corner starring uh, Steve Martin, Rick Moranis and Joan Cusack. Check that one out if you can. It was a lot of fun. So that's it. On next week's podcast, we'll be bringing you another slice of movie and TV related podcast fun. But before then, please follow our Facebook and Instagram accounts at 
at Movie Mouth Podcast and hit subscribe or give us a nice five-star review on your podcast player of choice. There's just one last thing to say, Phil, isn't there? Yes. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond. I expect you to die. (laughs) Evil. Very evil of you. Just like me. Bye, Phil. Bye, then. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye! So it's yet another retelling of the Arthurian legend, but this time centering around uh, Nimue. Oh, fuck's sake. It's not Nimue, it's Nimue. (laughs) (laughs) This this time featuring Emu. Rodhol and Nimue. (laughs) Rodhol and Nimue. It's because it's spelled N-I-M-U-E. Nimue.